to episode 384 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Andrew Swafford. And Jesse. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will be concluding our cinematic journey through the Bible with a movie that has nothing, that does not involved in the Bible, but kind of is a little bit <laughs> with 1979's... It's apocryphal. Yeah. With 1979's Monty Python's Life of Brian. Um... Real quickly, head over to cinematary.com. We got some good Bible. We got some good Bible writing. Again, I'm going to keep hyping up Cam's silence essay and Michael's uh, Momali's Noah essay. So um, if you have not, we read- also got a. Um, this is this is incoming. Maybe it'll be on the site by the time this episode goes live. But we got an essay coming in from the one and only Logan Kenny. Hey. Um, about the the movie Drive My Car, which I've been hearing more and more good stuff about. I just every I time I hear or see the name of it, I feel like they're talking about the Beatles song. Yeah, I mean it's it's by it's adapted from a Murakami story, yeah. and Murakami loves the Beatles, so that is an intentional allusion. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's know. a it's a nice movie that only people who live in New York and L.A. can watch. So congrats to them. Mm-hmm. Fuck the rest of us. And I guess Logan Kenny. That's... <laughs> And, and I guess Logan and Scott. Well, I'm sure they got some good movie theaters in Scotland. So really fuck the rest of us because we're having to watch. Well, one of these movies we're having to watch. The other one we're joyfully we're getting to watch. We're joyfully getting to watch. Um, let's start with a fun mm-hmm. one. Um, Licky pizza. Yeah, but let's talk about some Licky pizza. Licky <laughs> Did you watch it too, Zach? He did. Oh, rock yep. and roll. Well, what did you guys think of, of Licky Pizza? Um, I guess I can kind of start like a smidgen. Um, can we preface your review by saying that Paul Thomas Anderson is your favorite filmmaker? Bro, you should have just let... That's exactly what I was going to say. Okay, I'm sorry. Sheesh. That was, that was pretty much all I was going to say. Okay. I think we were talking one day, um, and I, we were going through like directors that I'm aware of <laughs> and directors that I've seen multiple movies of, and I was trying to figure out, do I have a favorite currently living currently still making movies director Mm -hmm. and i don't know if i can 100 percent confidently say this but i think paul thomas anderson might be my favorite director currently alive talking about miyazaki but miyazaki's like technically retired yeah Um, well paul thomas amberson is my favorite orson welles movie so i love him (laughs) um he i guess what i love so much about his movies is he makes he just really brings characters to life he he makes such distinct and odd little people mm-hmm. and you just get to spend time with these people and and really and, and really just watch them go it's just mm-hmm. like winding up a little robot and just kind of watching it do all its little things um and you just hang out with them that's what that's what's so neat he just creates a vibe and he creates all of these really really unique flawed but interesting and lovable people mm-hmm. um and then you just kind of watch them go. And whether that it's got like a really dicey, intense plot or whether you're just kind of floating and hanging out, um, he, either way, I think he, he manages to do both incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Um, and Licorice Pizza is no exception to that. Um, I mean, it's maybe like the, the best example of the specific thing you're talking about, of mm-hmm. just kind of like hanging out with interesting people. Yeah, just winding up all these little things and then just watching them go and interact mm-hmm. with each other and stuff. Um, all of these characters, like that, that's the thing about him. He makes these characters that are like 
lovely and and so annoying too like both at the same time um and you can't help but love them and think that they're just little dumbasses. yeah um and so dipshit is the word that gets used in this yeah movie the yeah most. he's also used um, it in interviews to describe the characters and they're just so funny like just watching this teenager his little entrepreneur um thinking of the next stupid thing he's gonna do and then but he goes in like just full force and it's such an interesting contrast to alana who... We should probably say what this movie is about. Okay, so licorice pizza. <laughs> is it really about anything? You it's know? not really about anything. It's set in the 70s, 70s? 73. 1973 in uh, California. I guess it's loosely kind of based off of his youth. Yeah, San and, Fernando Valley, that's where he grew yeah, up. Yeah, and kind of his early days kind of getting into the filmmaking industry. Um, it stars Philip Seymour Hoffman's son. What's his first name? Cooper. Cooper. Cooper Hoffman. Cooper Hoffman. Come on. And, um, Look at the cat and remember. Uh, Alana Heim from the the musical group Heim. And actually all the Heim sisters are in the movie. And I guess the Heim parents too. The Heim parents are also in the movie. Because I guess that whole, the whole Heim family is good friends with Paul Thomas Anderson. And it's about a teenage boy um, starring, who's played by Cooper Hoffman, who um, is a young... I guess child actor. Mm-hmm. It seems like his acting days may be a thing of the past. There's an audition scene that he's in where he's trying to get another gig, and I don't know. He's I think, starting to age out of yeah. the roles that he has connections for. I mean, yeah. you watch his him do this audition, and I think you're supposed to feel very, very underwhelmed by his performance for this audition. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't really let that steam or that that loss of steam like kill his energy and joy so he just the whole movie there's not really much of a plot to it it's just kind of him coming up with some new grand idea and just going in it with full confidence and full force so whether that's selling waterbeds or um, creating an arcade um, and he just does it and with complete confidence and it's just funny because there's no there's he's no a a, he's a bit of a hustler yeah yeah, he never has a fear of failure. He just goes for it, and then when it doesn't work, he just comes up with a new idea and rolls with it. And Alana, meanwhile, um, he meets her in the first scene, and it's this beautiful long scene just with these two characters. He like immediately is in love with her. He sees her. He's like, "This is it," and he plays up his little charm. Um, and she's like almost a decade older than him. Yeah, she a, is a decade. A twenty-five-year-old photographer who kind He's of feels 15. like she's. Um, sort of wasting away. She doesn't really feel like she's got a lot of promise or, or a lot of an, another good step to take in her, mm-hmm. you know, mid twenties, which I think really resonates with a lot of people, kind of in that mid twenties of like, okay, is the thing I'm doing now where I'm meant to be, where I want to be, where I'm always going to be? Is there anywhere higher I can climb? Yeah. Or am I stuck in this? Yeah. Spot? Am I going to be stuck here? Yeah. Is this all there is for me? Um, and she feels very stuck. And then she meets this teenager who just feels like he's got his whole world ahead of him. And she can't help but be very curious, if not like kind of laughing at him, but kind of in like amused and interested in just his confidence and energy. And he immediately asks her out, immediately wants to spend time with her. And she's just like, am I crazy for kind of digging this ridiculous situation? Um, and not necessarily in a romantic way, just in a, like a fun and curious way. And that's pretty much the movie. It's just her continuing, mm-hmm. despite maybe her best judgment, to hang out with him and his rambunctious little teenage friends and get into all of their entrepreneurial mischief and shenanigans um i mean you said there's no central plot but the central plot is or the central conflict i guess is that 
he wants to be with her. Right. Um, and, and like, that is one of two things that have made this movie, like, radioactively controversial online um, because it is about, like, a minor um, in, like, pursuing a romantic relationship uh, with someone who is 10 years older than him. Yeah. And um, the movie is in a way kind of um structured as like a romantic comedy right um and there's been a lot of debate about like how we the audience are supposed to feel about this like what lines are and are not crossed and and what are we as audience members like you know willing to kind of allow ourselves to to buy into romantically on screen with something like this um there's also the question of like where the relationship ends up which i think we can't really talk about without spoiling the movie and I, I don't want to spoil the movie for people um, but I mean that is definitely like a reservation that I have about the movie mm-hmm. like um, to to what extent would this be as like cute and fun as it is if the genders were swapped right um, like I can think of three movies in recent years that have kind of dealt with underage boys in relationships with people who are adults um, this movie, um, Call Me By Your Name and Garden of Words by Makoto Shinkai. Um, plenty more and I, I've, and it's interesting, like all three of those are like male leads. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I think the conversation would be different if it was a female lead. Oh, I could think of a female lead movie in an education too. An education. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But that one is much more like overtly dark and yeah. like we are, we are kind of, um, meant to feel as though the character is making a grave mistake, uh, right. on one level. But I guess with this one, it's kind of hard to tell where exactly how you're supposed to feel as the audience with the whole thing. Um, I don't think that they're, I don't think that it ever feels like the movie is framing this as like creepy. Um, and I also think that it, it, it's it's fair to acknowledge that probably every teenager has had a crush on somebody who's quite a mm-hmm. bit older than them. And this and, is based on and if we're Paul pretty, Thomas Anderson. That's not true. Like, yeah, it is true. Um, whether or not that that should be reciprocated. You know, I think we can yeah. agree when we're in our mid-20s that, no, obviously it shouldn't be. Right, right. But when you are young and you see people who just seem so charming and older and have their selves together, but that does not that's not the case here. No. Um, he just falls in love with her just because right. he does. It is kind of a similar dynamic to Shinkai's Garden of Words right. um, where you have a, a minor character who's kind of like wise beyond his years and then an adult female character who's like in this state of arrested development and yeah. it, it like basically still lives as a child. And, and it's kind of about like both movies are kind of about those lines right. um, being a little blurrier um, than like the law, um, you know, makes them out to be. Um, anyway, we've been right. rambling, Zach. Yeah. What about you? Well, well, you think about you think about um, what's great about the movie is it also structures it has that. But then I think it works because it structures the adults as also like like all, none of the adults are, are are really good in this movie. Um, you think of whether it's like the Sean Penn Bradley character, character or, is absolutely a child. <laughs> he just Bradley Cooper's things. character is absolutely it's like, a child. It's like PTA just threw in just a little extra chaos. Like he just he was like, let's just dump like a whole bag of chaos into this one yeah, guy. Yeah. We'll just we'll just divvy it out a little bit for everybody else. But this guy gets a whole bag all to himself. Mm-hmm. It's just. <laughs> And so I think what keeps like bringing the Alana character back to Gary is is that she she constantly kind of hits a point where she's like he's so immature I just can't do this anymore and like tries to find an adult 
person to like move forward and then she slowly begins to you know each time she's she'll slowly realize how um how childish and how like uh you know underdeveloped the adult characters are from you know the sean penn character who is uh this this kind of tv movie star who is just there drinking and cavorting and just doing things like that you have the bradley cooper character who's like smashing everything you know i think you get if it's not too spoilery you get like to her most adult person with the benny safty character at the end who you who you kind of like categorize okay so this is this is an adult together person who like seems like you're going in a like serious path and then that kind of dissipates and so you know there's that line um there's that line at the end where they where they go they're all shits aren't they and it's like it's, it's kind of the sweet line about relationships but it's also just this kind of like i feel like that's like the lexicon for the whole movie is you just realize that they're all just kind of shits and that gary while younger and also a kind of a hustler himself who will probably become a shit later on like there's still like this purity to him that i think that's what keeps bringing her back that even though he's he's 15 and you know bouncing between different businesses he at least is like genuine um you know in his affection for her um yeah i mean it it is kind of like an embodiment of uh, that cliche about you know adults not really knowing what they're doing either um you know all, all the adults in this movie are just are just kind of like trying to make it work um, but, that is really funny, yeah. like, having entered, you know, later 20s now, I'm, I'm kind of now finally in, like, full swing career mode, Jess, finally, mm-hmm. year two of career mode, um, and it's funny, like, I constantly feel like, God, I've just barely got myself together right now, right. but I always have thought, like, the adults around me, they really have themselves together, and they mostly don't either, like, everybody's right. just sort of making it up, one day I sent a picture of my breakfast to, like, a friend of mine, and I was eating, like, pirate's booty and an energy drink, and that was my breakfast, and I was like, I'm a mess, and my friend responded, and it was really sweet, and she said, don't let anybody make you think that they are not, like, in the same exact place as you are, like, we're all just making it up, and everybody yeah, yeah. is just, like, <laughs> barely keeping themselves together most days and people eating crap like that too it's not just you yeah and that's what i love about this movie. i think that um paul thomas anderson has kind of got not that like phantom threat or well phantom threat is really rambly but like he's kind of got to like this this point in his career where he makes these movies where like the important like overall like the message is kind of in the is in the background and the foreground is just like kind of like what you were talking about at the beginning, why you like him. Like it's just kind of accentuating these personalities, these characters yeah. and just like all living about, like all the late period, quote unquote, Paul Tanner Sanderson movies, which I'm going to define as like puns, drunk love onward are kind of about two big personalities, kind of like a duking it out over the course of the movie. Like in, in punch drunk love, you have Barry and then Lena um, in There Will Be Blood, you have Daniel Plainview and the pastor character played by Paul Dano. Um, I mean, and you could go down the list of all of mm-hmm. them. Phantom Thread, obviously, Vicky Creeps and uh, 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 Daniel Day Lewis. Daniel Day Lewis's character, right? And and here, like we've been talking about, you we have this like kind of uh, shit heel fifteen year old and like this juvenile twenty five year old played by Alana Heim. My favorite scene of the movie is like the the only scene that gets overtly confrontational between them where she like 
leans down to him like he's sitting at a desk and she leans down over him and says i'm cooler than you <laughs> and like that scene plays out for quite a that's while that's exactly what somebody who's cool would say yeah right? exactly <laughs> um right um well i you know it's it's funny people have been kind of uh linking this with boogie nights as like like this is like that's really kind don't of the, see that connection i don't see it either yeah. i see it more with like inherent vice which is a movie that i've become i've started to appreciate more and more and more um the more each each time i've seen it because that's a movie that like the joaquin phoenix character is just like rambling through this world that has like a bunch of like like there's stuff happening in that movie but it's not the most important like like it's like what it's focusing on is the mundane stupid shit that like joaquin phoenix is getting into but then there's also this like big shit that's happening in the background that you kind of have to pay attention to to like see it and like i think that that's more like like there's big important like there's shit going on in this movie but that's not what you're focused on you're focused on just this you know the silly the silly stuff i mean like that scene when they go to bradley cooper's house is just the whole that whole sequence is the fucking best it's so like holy shit that that Yes, the, the like it's an action set piece essentially. Yeah. Like it's a it's almost like a shot like a car chase scene, but it's only only in one car. Yeah, um, yeah I think the connection in Inherent Vice is a perfect connection because um, you know in that movie there's like all this political unrest that's happening in the background, and there's like this the CIA infiltrating like black liberation groups and stuff like that. Um, but like our character is too stoned and like too confused by the complexity of the situation to really notice what's happening. And also like you can't blame him because like who can notice those like grand conspiratorial things like happening in the background of American history as they're happening. Um, and in this in this case, like it's much more like obvious stuff that the, the main character is missing. Like Alana Heim says this like very overtly at several points in the movie, like that that Cooper Hoffman's character doesn't know what's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's this gas shortage um, because of like American foreign policy. Um, and it's directly affecting him because it directly affects his business, but he doesn't understand it at all. Um, and like, if we're talking about this movie as like a movie about youth um, or even about like adulthood and like not really get having much of a grasp on adulthood, like that is a part of both of those experiences. Like, I think too, like her, her decision towards the end of the movie to try to get involved with the mm-hmm. guy who's running for mayor. She's politics, like, okay, yeah. yeah, I'm tired of just like floating around. I got to get involved. Like this is what's going to make me important. I need to be important. And to mm-hmm. be important, I'm going to get involved politically and care. And I think that I think a lot of 20-somethings, 30-somethings, like millennials were getting sure. frustrated. We want to kind of get involved, but then kind of flailing it. What does that actually mean? What kind of change can we actually affect? Mm-hmm. And um, like you know, sort of realizing that we are kind of powerless in a lot of it. I think, I think Paul Thomas Anderson is also working on this level lately. That's similar to Wes Anderson where like, I don't think they're overtly political directors, but they like to kind of like put, and I think that annoys people because they feel like it should be in the fort like that. So when you should be like reckoning with like politics. And I think both of them kind of put it like in the background to these other things, to these characters, to these other moments, like more personal moments. And to me, I think that's just more effective. Like I think that the politics of like Grand Budapest Hotel or the French Dispatch is way more interesting than, you know, this political moment i mean like we we, we were joking before style of the adam mckay style exactly (laughs) like don't look up like i think it's much more because it puts it like on this personal level and i think you can like respond to it better because that's what's happening like it's not like 
even though we know that climate change is happening, it's not like we're directly necessarily engaged with like the, the up and down of it. It's like, it's something that's happening on this like monumental scale that like we're just little ants to. And I think that's how Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson like operate with their movies as well. Um, we've been talking about it for a long time, but I do want to talk about two other things before we leave licorice pizza behind. Um, one is the, just like the filmmaking style. Um, I think that I, I said a couple weeks ago that West side story was a movie that like kind of made me realize how shoddily made a lot of modern, um, movies are. Um, and this is another example of like something that just like feels cinematically a cut above what, you know, 90% of what's coming out. Um, Absolutely. And we were actually fortunate enough to be able to see this on 35 millimeter um, at the Belcourt in Nashville. Oh, and it cool. just, it just like had such a great like texture and feel to it. Yeah. Um, it was very grainy. I mean, like yeah. even the, uh, the opening shot, especially is just this walk through the high school. And it really did mm-hmm. feel like you were just watching a movie right, right. out of the era. But I mean, I think, I think um, even if you're not getting to see it on a format like that, um, it is like very um, thoughtfully shot. Um, I think that, Paul Thomas Anderson is a really, and I don't know if this has always been true about his movies, but in this movie specifically, like he has like really effective use of close-ups. Um, like so much of this movie is just like really, really tight shots on people's faces. Um, and a lot of the comedy of the movie comes a lot of the comedy and a lot of the more emotional stuff in the movie kind of comes from these small gestures and people's body language and eye movements and things like that that you ordinarily like you either wouldn't pick up on or the the director is not caring enough to ask the actors to do or caring enough to focus on with the camera um but it's it's it creates like lots of little like minute interpersonal dynamics um where you're kind of like reading how people are like reacting to each other and like withholding their reactions from each other mm-hmm. um the one of the funniest scenes of the movie is a scene where alana heim is being interviewed by a casting agent oh my God. and it's an extremely close shot on that casting agent's face and i don't i don't think i've ever seen this woman in a movie before and i don't remember her name at the top of my head i'm sorry but like the things that she does with like her upper lip and her nose and like her eyelids like they just twitch in like the most hilarious and effective ways um her character's only in the movie for about five minutes yeah and then we never come back to her but she it's, it's, it's a lot it's comparable to bradley cooper's character and just how completely unhinged mm-hmm. this very small interaction is that we never return to right um where she's like excited but it's almost like i don't know if she's on like she's we think she's like coked up or something like i can't she's, tell she's it's excited hysterical. and happy and furious and i don't yeah, know you can see her like like time. cycling through a whirlwind of emotions just like sitting behind this desk listening to this girl explain it's what she phenomenal. can do as an actress i love watching actors faces in movies and just yeah. seeing how they can really bring nuances well, it's uh it's uh it's Harriet Sansom Harris. She was in, um, she plays the American heiress and Phantom Thread who they like oh. go to her hotel room and take her dress off. Okay. When she, pe- I, yeah. I've been really wanting to rewatch Phantom Thread. We need to do it. Okay. Um, and when you're not getting those close up shots, um, which like 
are that's how most of like the dialogue scenes are shot in this movie um the camera is usually moving like at sometimes at kind of a breakneck pace because there's all these um like montage sequences where the characters are running from one place to another like it is a very youthful movie in like the physicality of it like you're just watching these teenage boys and Helena Heim just kind of like running around their neighborhood um and the and the camera is kind of like always keeping pace with them and things are just whizzing by the camera faster for you to register um and so there's just like this sense of exuberance um to the film that um i i really responded to that's loving it's very sweet and tender at its core and playful do do you think do we need to comment on the well, that's why I said there were two things we should probably talk about, like the camera work, and then we should also address like the other controversy about this movie, which is like the Asian representation. Um, there was a viral TikTok of a woman kind of arguing that people should not go see Licorice Pizza because it has these uh, jokes in it that are racist against Asian people. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I wouldn't necessarily argue like too vehemently against somebody who was Asian and was offended by the way that that stuff is handled in this movie. Um, but I think that like it is maybe a little bit more well handled than the discourse around it is making, is, is making it out to be. Um, the joke in question is a white character who's married to an Asian woman who two different Asian women at, at various points in the movie, two different Asian women. Yeah. Um, when he speaks to another white person, he speaks in his normal voice, but when he speaks to his wife or other wife, he speaks in this like exaggerated Asian accent. Like he's still speaking English, but as if it was like somebody who he's like translating for her when people are yeah. speaking English to him and her, but his translation is just English, yeah. but sounding like like a Asian caricature or something like he just sounds yeah. ridiculous and it's very obvious that we're supposed to watch him and be like oh, look at this fucking asshole right like the joke is get a load of this asshole get a load of this asshole um, and this, this he just feels so bad for these women yeah. and it's it, I think the joke is like further shown to show how much of an asshole he is because the next time you see this character mm-hmm. he's married to a different Asian woman and you're like oh god now yeah. she has to put up with this bullshit and I also learned recently that Paul Thomas Anderson's stepmom is Asian mm-hmm. and like he put that in the movie because like so much of this is pulled from his life Mm -hmm. and he has had the experience of like watching white people like put on that exaggerated voice Mm -hmm. to talk to his stepmom and like he wanted to kind of make fun of that so i think that ultimately it comes from a place of like wanting to be anti-racist um though i guess your mileage may vary on whether or not that plays for you um i asked jessica about it last night because she just saw it um or i asked cam about it because we were in a conversation about it. i said what did mm-hmm. jessica think um and i think jessica's take is that she thought it was it was fairly well done or not as bad as she was worried it was going to be mm-hmm. but that she thought it could have been better if the asian women got subtitles for when they spoke uh, Japanese, I think is what they're speaking. Um, And I could see that working too. I think it could especially be funny if like, it was very clear that he didn't actually understand what they were saying um, in their subtitles. Um, So I I could see that. Um, But like, I definitely don't think it's like a deal breaker for the movie as it stands right now. And I think like the, the, the point, you know, that he's trying to highlight, I feel like a lot of people have made the statement, like, he's trying to show that this wasn't wasn't cute and quirky then, and it's still not now. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But it's not in like a serious scoldy way. No. You know, like it's still presented in this like the very like, funny. When you do things scene. like this, you look like an idiot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so stop. <laughs> These are like completely autonomous people right. who just yeah, I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts, Zach, before we move on? No, go see Licorice Pizza. It's fun. It's really good. You it's should fun go see and it. cozy. Yeah. Yeah. Um You know it's not fun and cozy. Spider-Man No Way Home. <laughs> no way. <laughs> I'm going to try to be, uh, I need a little bit of a, you know, like a like an open lane on this one. I'm going to work through some stuff on it. I'm going to, uh, uh, and the, just a, a, a note, this is, I'm going to get insanely spoilery on this because I know that they don't care. And honestly, like, grow up, like, who cares? You know, it's, it's Spider-Man. It's whatever. It's Spider-Man. Like, move on with your life. He's got the webs. Um, he, I mean, there are, let's be real. There are good Spider-Man movies. There are some oh, real I love good Spider-Man movies. Let me let me preface. Yeah. I love Spider-Man. Yeah. I don't love this new Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I love Spider-Man. Uh-huh. Like, I don't as love in the new, new... by the new Spider-Man, you mean Tom, Tom Holland and Spider-Man? General? Yeah, I don't like this new trilogy of movies because it's like, it's Spider-Man, but he's like best friends with a tech billionaire. And like right. I've Spider-Man's... not seen any of the standalones, but I've seen him in the Avengers movies, and it has graded on me in the worst way. Like that that stuff about him, like being this yeah. heir to the throne of like this Elon Musk character. Yeah, don't don't like that. Yeah, don't like that at all. Because that's 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 like the antithesis of who Spider-Man is. Anyway, so there's two things I kind of wanted to talk about with this movie. The first one is that um, it's. As you can tell from the box office, that people really like Spider-Man movies. Yeah, it's um, it's the highest-grossing movie of both 2021 and 2022, like already, right? Um, what? The, you yeah. can't say that. I, that, get... that is what I've heard. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So like, so people like Spider, and so it's it's strange that like, pretty much Marvel kind of used this as like a little bit of a ground to. Um, and they've done this with all the Spider-Man. Movies. That's what's also annoying me about this trilogy of movies is they've also used this as like a as like an opportunity to kind of like build up their other characters. And so, this movie, like, so the movie's like two and a half hours. Honestly, like an hour to an hour and a half of this movie is like a Doctor Strange movie, the Benedict Cumberbatch character, because there's a lot of like they get into his whole thing and like his whole world, like, and so like literally a lot of this movie it just becomes. Um, them kind of pumping up literally this other movie that's going to come out next year as well as this character who I think they're probably like we need people to get invested in this person um, which I think is strange like at the end of the day you're like this is the, like his name's on the marquee it's like it's a Spider-Man movie like like let's do Spider-Man stuff um, and that was always a problem because I mean before he died in the movie um, Iron Man was pretty much like the second Spider-Man movie was like an Iron Man movie because Robert Downey Jr. just shows up and like you know hams around for two and a half hours the second thing is so um this is the super spoilery so as as you've seen probably through the marketing they like the plot of this movie is spider-man like opens up this like multiverse so like all these different characters from different spider-man movies um come into this one and that includes uh willem dafoe's green goblin from the first spider-man movie alfred molina's dr octopus from the second spider-man movie i mean literally everybody the sandman from the third movie jamie fox from the amazing spider-man to like all of these villains come in but um on top of that so you so you have all these villains and so like the issue that i kind of had with them and the way that they like bring them in is that 
you know, I think unequivocally, most people agree that like the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies are probably the best out of all the Spider-Man movies that we've had. I, I think that that is objectively correct. I will say that it is a, a generational thing. Though. It is a generational like, thing. Ask people who are younger than us, and that becomes a very controversial question. But I mostly think that's because they don't have taste in movies yet. They're they're still like forming. Well, their and brains. also, and also, <laughs> I think it's just it's it's kind of like the regardless of if you like them or not, like it it kind of is like the face of what a Spider-Man movie looks like. Like people think, like I think initially, like kind of the more industry wide kind of goes to that portrayal. Um, and so it's really weird. So the, the plot of the movie with these villains becomes not, hey, let's watch Tom Holland's Spider-Man fight all these bad guys necessarily. Um, it, it, it instead like starts to become, I want to rehabilitate these villains because they like became like they are reacting to what these Spider-Mans did to them in their universe. <laughs> so I'm gonna like make them better. Which, 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 okay, but like, to me, this like became, like, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but like, it become, became almost a nefarious thing where, so you have Marvel and more broadly Disney becoming the culture, like becoming popular culture is Disney and becoming like whatever. I mean, I don't think, I don't think it's becoming, I think we're, we're there. there. So it's become Disney. So Disney yeah. has this like unfeathered control of culture at the moment. Um, and literally, it feels like Disney going, all right, let's take these three Spider-Man movies that Sam Raimi made with Tobey Maguire, and let's make the, let's take these two Spider-Man movies that Andrew Garfield is in, and let's literally rework them to work for our, like, for us. And so there's not any, like, like work being done for this Spider-Man. It's literally taking all of this pre- or you know all this knowledge you had previously of these other villains and of these other Spider-Mans and bringing them in and literally rehabilitating them through their own Spider-Man in order to build it out of that mold. I mean it's it's yet another movie that is just like an exercise in like manipulating IP. Right? Like that you you've written essays about this um going back to like Space Jam 2 and then the Lego movie, etc. Ready Player 1. There's something different about this because it literally it, it's literally like taking like if you had like just for the sake of like visualizing it, like taking the the text and going in there and literally just like rewriting it because that's what they do. Like they literally like it's like erasing what happened in those and rewriting it to like wait. Like they they try to like retcon what happens in the Sam Raimi Spider Man movies. If if we're if we're like gonna buy, like work through how this movie f- comes out, they literally retconned all of these movies so that if like we just somehow were able to teleport into the second spider-man movie dr octopus wouldn't be wouldn't be dead and he would be healed things like that so like that's i don't i don't fully see the point of doing that other than like we need to bring these characters under our our umbrella somehow exactly other, other than the fact that I know people will react to this and we need to bring it again. Yeah, we need to bring it under so that literally to me, like on a very basic level, it feels like Marvel Disney going, let's fix all this stuff because I've heard people uh, talk about reacting very positively to this, like including people who contribute to this podcast sometimes talking about like crying in the theater over like how, you know, emotional this made them. I mean, 
I mean, I love I love Spider Man, and so like, like the super spoilery stuff is that Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield show up in that this makes as Spider Man. I think everybody knew that. I think there were there were news stories about this years ago, right? You kind of, I mean, you kind of knew, but at, like when when Tobey Maguire shows up in the costume, it's cool, you know, like it, and like on a on like a on a level, like I I enjoy that, like I liked seeing Tobey Maguire kind of embodying this character again. It was it was good to see Andrew Garfield, who was kind of in a mangled series, you know being able to kind of do stuff and actually like you know get to be spider-man a little bit like that stuff was cool but at the end of the day like it feels to me like like literally it's like marvel surgery of let's fix these movies that don't fit like what we're doing now and let's fix them so that these generations that you were talking about that maybe like the tom holland spider-man or the andrew garfield spider-man more like now that's fixed so that you know, we we changed all that, so now it's good because of us, and that seems. Weird. I wonder. I know, like the licensing of Spider-Man has been very up in the air, along with the X-Men over the years. Like those have been the two like Marvel stable characters that like Disney hasn't had their hands on like consistently throughout the last decade, um, and now they do. Like that's why Tom Holland Spider-Man is a thing. Um, I wonder if that means that Disney owns the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies now too. Like, are they are they trying to get people to go watch those movies so that they get royalties and, and, for them? And technically, I mean, if if you want to get incredibly technical here, technically Sony is reaping all the benefits from this because Sony still owns the big stake in Spider-Man. So tech, so with all this box office stuff, technically Sony's the winner, but. I'm not stupid. Like Marvel and in the Marvel machine is what's operating this thing. That's why Sony went to you know, that's why they and Sony worked out a deal. And so it's just again, like I know that I'm that people will probably disagree with this and I know that people probably are like that. I don't care, like I enjoyed it. And like there was parts of it that I enjoyed. Like I, there was stuff that I liked about it. it. Again, it was also kind of fun to see like like Willem Dafoe is is really good in this movie. I mean, I'm like, Willem Dafoe is just need... a great actor. He he's really good in this <laughs> yeah. movie. And you're just like, why are you going this hard for this Spider Man movie? Um but like at the at the end of the day, I'm like, what is this movie telling me about my about like about culture and what it's telling me is that marvel is coming and trying to surgically repair old movies in order to you know be the end-all be-all and like that just seems to me like something incredibly nefarious and like insanely depressing like i came out of this way like incredibly depressed because i was just like this is awful like like why can't these movies just live like just live in their own like just leave it but you had to bring them in in order to like cultivate your your whole thing and it just i don't know it's it's just it's a strange experience i didn't again i didn't absolutely hate it i just i think it's weird how these things are being structured now i don't i honestly don't see why marvel is continuing to like make movies not because i don't want why yeah why don't they just make tv they should just shows make tv put shows them on disney plus because like they found success doing that with like the the Hawkeye TV show and WandaVision, etc. Like these stories are so much better suited for a serialized television. I mean, don't format. you think they're just? It's because they're making crazy money. It's because movies make more money. Yeah, yeah, and I and I get that, but I I think maybe that's... once like they have enough of like the American population like just consuming shit on Disney Plus and not going to the movie theater, they will pivot to that. But right now, the theater is the cash cow. Yeah, and so I get that, but it's but it's also like they're wanting 
wanting things to be so interconnected that yeah it makes more sense to just do it on tv because that's a a medium that seems more conducive to the comic book way of like bringing characters in and stuff it just it doesn't totally work in the movie you know like like i said like when an hour and a half of your spider-man movie is dr strange proving his worth to the audience i'm just like i don't care like well i didn't come to see a dr strange movie and and one of the things that's great about the sam raimi spider-man movies is how small scale they feel like they are this little self-contained world where peter parker is the only one who has superpowers or like the only good person who has superpowers and like the stakes feel really high but like when you have tom holland who's like already lived through the like destruction of half of the universe and like has seen like all the wakanda people marching through space portals and shit like it just feels like we're not in real like reality on any level anymore um like i can't get invested if i feel like there's no danger whatsoever and i know there is danger in this movie they try to make it to where like oh he's gonna die or they, whatever but i mean again i'll just spoil it they kill aunt may but i mean Marissa Tomei's made three movies like like let her get her money and get out of there like why is she hanging around um and so no I mean there's just I don't know like I, I didn't want to I'm not coming at this as like a super anti-Marvel thing if any it just it I just kind of I mean that's it just depresses me that like that's the way <laughs> we're gonna structure like I, did you, there's one thing to have an Avengers movie where you bring all the characters and all the portals show up and all the characters come out and people lose their mind. And there's another thing to literally go and retcon other movies to fit your mold. You know, like our, whenever we get into like X-Men movies that I, I assume they'll start making at some point soon, are they going to go and like bring those characters and like do the same thing? Like where does that end? Um, and I don't know. Also, they already did the fucking multiverse thing. Like Into the Spider-Verse is great. It is a great movie. Like, you can do this really well. Um, But, you know, Into the Spider-Verse is a movie that's kind of, like, existing on its own terms and and not just, like, trying to, like, uh, capitalize on all this IP, right? Yeah. And so, that's, so again, I mean, Spider-Man Away From Home, it's literally in every theater imaginable, like... I, 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 I'm not going to like endorse it. Like you're going to go see it if you want to go see it. So, but I, I, that's just, that's the stuff that the Spider-Man movies specifically that Marvel has made have been very, have like really like caused me to like churn in my head a little bit. There's interesting things going on that I don't think Marvel isn't like, in, like intending to do, but like just the, like how people love Spider-Man more than any other character in the Marvel universe. I'm, I'm like, that's just definitive. Like people like Spider-Man way more than anybody in the way he's the most relatable. Exactly. Superhero. And the way that they've like yeah. used that character to um, like tree off all their other ones is, is kind of, it's just, I don't know, something to me. I'm not going to say interesting. It's not really interesting. It's just something. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break and then uh, we're going to talk about Brian. Uh, we're going to talk about life of Brian. We're going to talk about Brian. He's a naughty, naughty Man boy. He's not Brian. the Messiah. He's not the Messiah, but we'll talk about him next after this break. Hello, 
Cinematary listeners, this is your favorite Filipino podcaster, Jessica Carr. I'm here to let you know about a couple of things that Cinematary offers that you might not know about. First, if you're a fan of what Cinematary is doing, please consider joining us on Patreon. Remember when we weren't clamoring for your dollars? Or now we're just clamoring for five of your dollars. So please help us and donate to our Patreon, and then you'll get exclusive content from our staff, including our Film Theory and Chill series, where a panel takes a piece of theory each month and deconstructs it before diving into whatever topic is on their mind from the past week. The $5 each month is investment in the website and the podcast, and it goes solely to paying our writers for the reviews each week, so please consider doing it. It's only $5. If you missed an episode of Cinematary or a piece of writing we've had, you should consider signing up for our free newsletter. Each Sunday, we send out a note with the latest podcast episode, piece of Patreon content, and the last two reviews that we've written at Cinematary.com. It's perfect for those of you who are interested in what's happening, and it makes sure that you don't miss a single Cinematary review. Finally, the easiest thing that you can do to help us is to please, please give us a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever else you're using to listen to the show. This helps us get more eyeballs and ears on the podcast and the website, and it helps the people know about Cinematary, which is really what we're here for. So to recap, consider donating to our Patreon, sign up for the free newsletter, and give us a rating or review. We would really appreciate if you could do these things. Thank you for listening, and now back to the show. Things in life are bad, they can really make you mad. Other things just make you swear and curse. When you're chewing on life's gristle, that grumble, give a whistle. And this'll help things turn out for the best And always look on the bright side of life Always look on the light side of life If life seems jolly rotten, there's something you've forgotten And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing when you're feeling in the dumps, be silly chumps. And we're Just back with part two of episode 384 of Cinematary. In this part, we'll be concluding our cinematic journey through the Bible with 1979's Monty Python's Life of Brian. Directed by Terry Jones from a script by Jones, John Cleese, Graham Chapman, uh, Terry Gilliam, Eric Idle, and Michael Palin. Uh, all of those men also star in the film. A young man, Brian, who was born one stable down and on the same night as Jesus, becomes intrigued by a young rebel, Judith. To try and impress her, Brian joins the independence movement against the Romans, the people's friend of Judea. However, in an attempt to hide from the Romans, he relays some of the teachings he heard from Jesus, which ends up spurring a crowd to believe he is the Messiah. While trying to get rid of his followers and reunite with Judith, he embarks on several misadventures. 39 local authorities in the United Kingdom either impose an outright ban or impose an X certificate on the film. Some countries, including Ireland and Norway, banned its showing, and in a few of these, such as Italy, bans lasted decades. Uh, the filmmakers used the notoriety to promote the film with posters in Sweden reading, quote, so funny it was banned in Norway. <laughs> uh, shortly after the release of Monty Python and the Holy Grail in 1975, Eric Idle flippantly suggested that the title of the Python's forthcoming feature would be called uh, Jesus Christ, Lust for Glory, a play on the UK title for the 1970 American film Patton. 
This was after he had become frustrated at repeatedly being asked what it would be called, despite the troupe not having given the matter of a third film any consideration. However, they shared a distrust of organized religion, and after witnessing the critically acclaimed Holy Grail's enormous financial turnover, confirming an appetite among the fans for more cinematic endeavors, they began to seriously consider a film lampooning the New Testament era in the same way that Holy Grail had lampooned Arthurian legend. Idol and Terry Gilliam, while promoting Holy Grail in Amsterdam, had come up with a sketch in which Jesus' cross is falling apart because of the idiotic carpenters who built it, and he angrily tells them how to do it correctly. However, after an early brainstorming session, and despite being non-believers, they agreed that Jesus was, quote, definitely a good guy, and found nothing to mock in his actual teachings. Quote, he's not particularly funny. What, what he's saying isn't mockable. It's very decent stuff, said Idol later. Uh, John Cleese wanted stunt casting for the role of Jesus, who appears once in the film. His suggestion was George Lazenby. Uh, uh, Cleese explained, quote, I thought that on the poster to have the words, and George Lazenby as Jesus Christ, would be something that people would treasure for at least the next millennium. Uh, after settling after settling on the name Brian for their new protagonist, one idea considered was that of the, quote, 13th disciple. The focus eventually shifted to a separate individual born at a similar time and location who would be mistaken for the Messiah but had no desire to be followed as such. Uh, this is a nice little call out to a previous episode we did in the series, but the first draft of the screenplay was provisionally titled The Gospel According to St. Brian. Uh, the film would not have been made without Python fan and former Beatle George Harrison, who set up handmade films to help fund it at a cost of three million pounds. Uh, Harrison put up the money for it as he, quote, wanted to see the movie, later described as by Terry Jones as the world's most expensive cinema ticket. The original backers, EMI Films, and particularly Bernard Delfont, had been scared off at the last minute by the subject matter. The very last words of the film are, quote, I said to him, Bernie, they'll never make their money back on this one, teasing Delfont for his lack of faith in the project. Terry Gilliam later said, quote, they pulled out on the, on the Thursday. The crew was supposed to be leaving on the Saturday. Disastrous. It was because they read the script, finally. Uh, as, a res as a reward for his help, Harrison appears in a cameo appearance as Mr. Papadopoulos, quote, owner of the mount, who briefly shakes hands with Brian in a crowd scene. His one word of dialogue, a cheery but out of place, hello, had to be dubbed in later by Michael Palin. Uh, the film was shot on location in Tunisia, which allowed the production to reuse sets from Franco Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth from 1977. Uh, many locals were employed as extras on Life of Brian, um, and Terry Jones noted that, quote, they were all knowing because they had all worked on the Zeffirelli film on Jesus of Nazareth. So I had these elderly Tunisians telling me, well, Mr. Zeffirelli wouldn't have done it like that, you know. Um, in 1979, the New York Times said, just when you thought that the uproarious English comedy troupe had taken bad taste as far as it could go with Monty Python and the Holy Grail, along comes Monty Python's Life of Brian to demonstrate that it's possible to go even farther in delirious offensiveness. Bad taste of this order is rare, but not yet dead. Monty Python's Life of Brian succeeds in sending not up not only movies like The Greatest Story Ever Told and King of Kings, but also a lot of the false piety attached to the source material. It is the foulest spoken biblical epic ever made, as well as the best humored, a nonstop orgy of assaults, not on anyone's virtue, but on the funny bone. And in 1979, Roger Ebert said that uh, Life of Brian is so cheerfully inoffensive that, well, it's almost blasphemous to take it seriously. Um, on that note, I feel like this is one that, out of the entire series that we're probably the most familiar with. So uh, what's, your, uh, what's your, your history with Life of Brian? I was thinking when we were watching it, um, Monty Python is cool in that 
it's just this group of friends, actors, writers, directors, um, who just took on a lot of projects together with that name. Mm-hmm. And that's not really something that you we have. But I don't know that there's any other. Yeah, we were trying to think of like modern day equivalents, and I I could think of like you know the Lonely Island has done some things like Pop Star, for example, and there's also like the Flight of the Concords guys. Yeah. Um, but I don't think we've ever had anything like on the scale of. Monty Python, like doing that kind of comedy or that right. kind of like and they're not community based project. They're not using like the same characters, like with Lonely Island. Right. Are, are they? Are, I don't know. Are they playing as their Lonely Island characters? No. Or even not. like like you can think almost comparable to like the Muppets and how you've got yeah, the same Muppets, the same little crew yeah. of people and characters taking on different types of projects, sometimes playing as themselves, sometimes playing as a character. Right. But there's not a lot of instances like this, and and. I don't totally love this movie. I think this is the least I've liked it of the times I've seen it. Maybe this is the third time I've seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still just a really admirable project in that that it was all created with a group. And I wish that we had more right. people doing like n- good enough and known enough and working together like that to continue to, to produce and work together as a group with a name behind them. I think that The Muppets is like a really interesting point of comparison. Everything goes back to The Muppets, doing. man, in this household. Like, in, the, in that like a lot of the humor comes from familiarity with the, the faces involved. Right. And like, you know, in Muppet Treasure Island, I was losing my mind when Kermit the Frog shows up as the right. captain of the pirate ship that they've kind of been hyping right. up as like this... Um, really, really tough love, sort of like military general mm-hmm. sort of guy, mm-hmm. and it's Kermit the Frog, and like just because I know him from other contexts, like it's right. so funny. And I think there are a lot of of, uh, of things in this movie that kind of work on that level of like you know most of the female characters being played by men who I who I know like intimately from other male roles um, is very very funny. And they have such a fun playful kind of comedy like one, one of the jokes that i thought was just hilarious was when they were all scheming together to go and try to ke- kidnap pontius Pilate's wife mm-hmm. and they were like no we've got a great cover we're gonna say that we are plumbers going to a convention as if in, <laughs> in like yeah. as in like 30 a.d a they had plumbers b people went to conventions <laughs> And see, and see if they would be having the convention in the in sewers. In the sewer. And then they were also saying there was like the name of the, the certain stretch of the sewer that was like somebody, somebody memorial sewer or something yeah, like that. Yeah, the Caesar Augustus memorial sewer. Yeah. See, my favorite, my favorite thing along those lines that kind of includes everybody is like one of the first bits when uh, Jesus is speaking on the mountain and they're just sitting there arguing. Eric Idle's calling people big nose and they're just like arguing. And Michael Palin's getting all worked. Like, that's, I love that part so much because it's so fucking childish and at the same time you have yeah, jesus there's the blessed cheese are the makers cheese makers yeah. yes and they finally say blessed make like oh good they need yeah they need something yeah they've had a hell of a time the whole i mean really the whole comedy of the movie is that everybody's a fucking idiot and it's funny to think about like this as basically Brian accidentally goes viral and yeah, can't like yeah. turn it off, um, and that's that's the humor of it. But it's so funny, also weird how when we were rewatching it, how late that plot actually happens. Like I thought that mm-hmm. the whole movie was this guy accidentally gets mistaken for Jesus, but that actually doesn't come in until over halfway. In yeah. Brian's head, the plot of the movie is he's trying to bag this lady, yeah. and in everybody else's head, that's not the plot of the movie, and well, that's just very funny. A great deal of the movie. 
I mean, this is something that I kind of realized watching it now for like the millionth time. I don't know why this didn't register to me before. Maybe just like lack of life experience. Mm -hmm. Um, A great deal of the movie is actually dedicated not to lampooning organized religion, but actually like political organizing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like specifically like leftist political um, like dissent. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and, and this is actually something that has historical ties to you know the the new testament era um there were all these kind of like factions of people who lived in jerusalem at the time you know there's the pharisees there's the sadducees Mm -hmm. and there's also the zealots um and there were all these kind of like loosely organized you know anti-roman rebellious organizations there's actually a a book that i have not read but i want to read called zealot which is kind of like Uh, invites the reader, I think, to kind of reinterpret the life of Jesus through the lens of like one of these rebels. Um, And like that, that is maybe like his political project in the New Testament. And we kind of talked a little bit about that uh, last week, Jesse, with Last Temptation of Christ, because like that's a character in that movie who we talked about, like he's not viewed very kindly by everybody. Like he, he's a crazy person who comes in and like knocks over their markets constantly. And so that's, that's no, that, that was interesting. And it's also just kind of interesting, like to see the, you know, the see Python, like make fun of these specifically, it's making fun of like 1970s British left-wing po- uh, political groups. Um, and you know, still today, like it, yeah. it very much rings true. Um, For like it rings true about, you know, how misinformation spreads like wildfire, how people, People can accidentally get a platform and then not get off. And then everything that they're said is either taken as gold or taken as like mm-hmm. just the worst thing you've ever heard. And just also how like ineffectual like left wing political groups can be because right. they just sit yeah. there and yes. like debate it. You know, like the, the embodiment of it is when Brian is being uh, arrested and she and Judith runs in and is like, come on, we got to go. Yes. And they're like, let's let's put, you know, mark this for the minutes. Yeah. And they start like voting let's, on let's it. Let's put it to a vote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's that's the kind of that's the kind of the searing most searing one on that but yeah i know it's it's also kind of interesting to think of it in the context of like of like who people like john cleese and terry gilliam you know rest in peace have kind of become uh as like these just kind of you know angry uh cancel culture obsessed uh very boring people well, you know, you know, watching it this time, I was also watching it through that lens because I, I think the last time I watched this movie several years ago, I wasn't really aware of the extent to which like Terry Gilliam and John Cleese had, has kind of become cranks about, you know, uh, political correctness or what have you. And and I do think that there are like seeds in here of that kind of reactionary mindset. Um, like there are jokes that I didn't necessarily understand um, kind of came from somewhat of a bigoted pers- perspective um, that do. Like, so much of the humor is, like, mocking people with speech impediments, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and also kind of like, I mean, if we, if we want to dwell on that for a minute, there's, like, the whole thing about Pontius Pilate having, um, is it, he doesn't dickus, have a dickus. list. Yeah, uh, he can't. He can't do S's. He can't do S's, or no, he can't do R's. Right. And then his friend Biggest Dickus can't pronounce S's, um, or is it T's? I forget. Um, 
Regardless, like, and also like, there's another layer to that where it's kind of like mocking gay people too, out of like the idea that you know the Romans were a bunch of horny gay dudes who were just like ha- having having sex with each other all the time, um, and like the modern day way of mocking that is like, well, they must have had like quote unquote gay voice. Let's make fun of that. Mm-hmm. Let's think of like these these hardened warriors as having gay voice, um, and. And like the trans thing. there's also the trans thing like there's the whole joke about like a man who identifies as a woman because he slash she wants to have babies and like kind of comes from a misunderstanding of like what trans people actually uh, believe slash want um that one's like, that one's interesting though because they almost kind of come around on it because then right, it's funny because by the end of the movie they're referring to the eric idol character as loretta <laughs> like yeah, just very like yeah. nonchalantly so they, they affirm it, but then they're they're like yeah but then they make fun of the whole idea behind it too which yes. is annoying i mean the but the thing that's kind of crazy to me is like I was able to notice this time how much of the humor kind of comes from the place of like mocking various marginalized identities. And yet it is still funny in a lot of cases, right? And it's still funny, not necessarily because of like the foundation of the joke, but the creative ways in which they find to play with it, like how far they're willing to take some of the jokes. Um, Like the, the stuff with Pontius Pilate, I think, you know, it eventually be, takes on this like cumulative, like absurd humor right. because of like not specifically the fact of having a list, but like the the fact that nobody else in the room can keep a straight face about it. Which um, is really funny because I was reading, you know, when I was making notes, I was reading about how Terry Gilliam. Um, so and so Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones both directed Holy Grail, but Terry Jones was the only director on this one, and it's because they just kind of needed to split up their their minds to a degree, and so. Uh, Terry Gilliam did like the set design and he and he was very 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 angry at Terry Jones because he did like this extravagant set design in that Roman the you know in the in the throne room and Terry Jones didn't focus at all on like you know how you know how well this room looked and how you know expansive it was he said but it's to your point like it's it's because they're focusing on the like elongating of the joke and it's it's the the point of that scene is to go to the different people who can't keep a straight face it's not to like luxuriate in this roman throne room and then once the crowd shows up and they're like arguing for who needs to be let out of prison it's like we need to release roger because he's a robber like (laughs) just the 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 way in which they like stretch these out i think is is really funny well that's the thing that's the thing with it that's the thing with the humor is they take every joke and they do that joke. They think they think of a joke idea, and then they do that joke for somewhere between like five and ten minutes. Yeah. So it's sort of like <clears throat> your your how much you can how fun that is for you. I think your mileage will vary, especially yeah. if you've seen the movie a few times. The humor kind of kind of reminds me of. Um, I think you should leave and that they'll come up with some kind of concept and then they'll just take that to as far as they can possibly take it. Yeah. And then they're like, okay, time to move on and do another joke. And that's, but that's pretty much the humor in the whole movie is they think of something and they sit with it and do that for a long time and play it out as long as they possibly can mm-hmm. and then do something else. Um, <clears throat> and I think it's really fun, you know, especially the first time I've seen it. I think after, like for me, this time watching it, it got a little tiring. 
Um, yeah, the second half, it, the, I think they lose a lot of steam in the second half. The first half, I think, is fantastic. Like that whole the with all of the stuff in the first half is great. Like I didn't even the the line that got me is in the first scene when the wise men come and they're like, "We're wise men," and she go and Terry Jones is like, "Well, three men walking around in an alley at two a.m. is not very wise, is it?" <laughs> <laughs> um, which is a great line. But the second half, when it becomes like Brian is the Messiah, honestly, like a lot of that stuff kind of loses loses its steam it's funny like at that initial the first scene when you know it's like we're all individuals like that stuff is great but it kind of loses steam after that we are all individuals yeah yeah and i I like in that scene where they start to like they're they're not just saying one thing or yes or no but they're saying really nuanced stuff like well all right (laughs) (laughs) but yeah Um, this 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 recent time watching it like i really like this one i think it's probably my favorite of the python movies but yeah, the second half is whenever it becomes about Brian as the Messiah, a lot of the jokes just, it, it's way funnier when Brian is kind of the secondary character when you're going to like the people's front of Judea and, you know, the the, the different characters, like whenever you're bouncing around at different characters, like honestly, my favorite character in the entire thing is the the Eric Idle cheeky guy who just is like making jokes, the into, like if they just followed him around the entire oh, time. The guy, the guy who almost gets out of, or the guy who does get out of crucifixion. No, he does. He gets crucified. He, uh, no, no, no. He gets off, and he's like, "No, I'm just kidding. You can put me back up." <laughs> oh, yeah. That see, that, that's my favorite character in the entire because it's just like he just is constantly, he's just constantly kind of moving forward and like making taking shots at like everything. But like the plot of actually Brian being the Messiah is kind of boring after a while. So thinking about people, you know, the backlash of the movie mm-hmm. and and the way pe- the pe- way people. Man, we were talking. Me and Andrew were talking about it, and I'm like. Christians really get what they want a lot of times. Like if something bugs them, they can whine about it enough. They and suck. They got no like sense of humor. That happen. Shoot, the worst. man. I mean, haven't you heard they're the most oppressed class in America? Oh my god. But but the movie, <laughs> England, I feel it like seems. it's not really sacrilegious in that it's not really making fun of Jesus or the concept of Christianity. Like they, it's they talk making about fun how of them. This guy's really making good points. It's making fun of Christians. It's making fun of them. Well, it's making fun of, fun of like religiosity writ large. And right. so like that's why I mean, I don't necessarily know if it's fair to argue this movie is not sacrilegious. Um, because it's like it doesn't take any issue with like the specific things that Jesus said, but it takes issue with like the religious mindset and like the historical events that kind of led to Christianity kind of becoming the, like the powerhouse institution that it is now. Like it kind of does cast doubt on the idea of like Christianity being true um, or like any, any religious uh, faith being true because there are like, these historical reasons why, um, you know, X, Y, Z belief became mainstream right. that may have nothing to do with actual divinity, right? Just like who went viral. Yeah, yeah. And like I mentioned this during the Gospel According to St. Matthew episode, like this is the movie of all the ones we've watched that seems most like tapped into the history of the time period to me. Um, like a there's the whole thing about the zealots Mm. being like a political movement during the time b there's the whole thing about you know prophecy being kind of like a normalized thing in the time culturally um and then also um there's this the whole thing about crucifixion 
Um, yes, you know, do. like in in Christianity, you know, crucifixion is like treated with this this grand reverence. Like you know, the cro- people wear cross necklaces, and like mm-hmm. the symbol of the cross is the whole symbol of the religion. Uh, and like I remember growing up in church, like being given these long sermons about like just how painful crucifixion was, and I'm sure it was right. But also, like Jesus was not the only person to be crucified. Right. That like in order for Jesus to have been crucified by the Roman empire like there would have had to be this like grand bureaucracy of crucifixion as like a standard way in which criminal justice was carried out um and so like it really like thinking about it in those terms like the the divinity or like the crucifixion of christ like kind of loses that kind of magical sparkle it's it's just like this an incident that happened in history right and if you don't believe in like the resurrection um then it, it kind of is like a non um like a, a, of no importance whatsoever you know um, well and it also like you know you think of uh, if you watch like passion of the christ there's like almost like this almost reverence for it like they really like they it's like a fetishization they like fetishize it, it like the whenever they're nailing him to the cross it's like this whole sequence where you're just like like can you just like move on with it like they really just lean into it and it's interesting this one i think uh last temptation as well is pretty good at like kind of under, is is more interested in like what you're describing like the act of crucifying people rather than like this one singular uh instance of crucifixion which seems to be more the prevailing narrative i also love by the way the the character i think he's played by john cleese who's like chained to that prison cell um who's like a a conservative a conservative roman prisoner <laughs> Like, oh, look at uh, you. He just reminds me of, like, people who, you know, make excuses for, like, the prison industrial complex today. Like, oh, we got to have some way to, like, you know, punish the wrongdoers or, like, you know, scare some sense into people or whatever. Like, thanks, Romans. <laughs> I wish you would spit in my face. <laughs> He's like, oh, Mr. Favorite over there. Yeah. He's getting, spit right in your face. Yeah. He's like, they just they just put me the right side up the other day. Right. <laughs> um so i guess you know we can kind of maybe broaden out and look at the at the the series kind of as a whole i kind of wish we had michael here to a degree but like um i think it was an interesting to me it was an interesting journey to kind of watch these movies and and kind of engage in these um other 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 interpretations of biblical stories and even like biblical stories on like a movie scale because we also have like the you know the passion of the christ and things like that that are are completely different um because i think it I, i think overall like it doesn't it doesn't um drown out the the more like prevailing narrative of things but offers much more i think it's like constructive like almost thought experiments and like like ways to kind of engage with faith that i think are are necessary regardless of if you believe or not like i think they're interesting even in that in that realm yeah what are your thoughts you know getting to the end of the series jess because i guess you've watched 
you've watched almost all the movies. You didn't watch Gospel According to St. Matthew, mm-hmm. but you watched all the others. Um, seems like you've kind of gone through a bit of a personal journey, like watching through all these movies and talking about um, theology every week on the podcast. Yeah. Um, how, what is your kind of like end point with this? <laughs> uh, gosh, I don't, I don't know if I've drawn any conclusions yet. Maybe that's a lifelong journey for me. Of course, yeah. Um, We're just trying to figure out if God is real or not. We, <laughs> this is what the whole series is about. I don't know. My current thinking is... I think with any religion, people people approach that to find some kind of inner peace. Because um, mm-hmm. I think the concept of Christianity, the concept of, you know, if you're stressed about something, if you're worried, if you're happy, give it up to God, right? Pray about it, say, put it in God's hands, trust that he's going to take care of you, whether it's good, like whether the outcome is good or bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very therapeutic. Like, you know, because a lot of times, you know, when I work with students or when therapists work with clients... I can't go in and change their lives and fix their problems, Mm -hmm. but they can find peace just in talking about it and they can find clarity sometimes in talking about it too. Like, well, here's another angle I hadn't considered. I can't fix their problems and I don't give advice. Um, And so Christianity, I can see it as kind of therapeutic for people who practice it in that knowing like there is a lot of powerlessness, but just kind of having faith that regardless, you're going to be, you're going to have the strength to get through whatever. I also see it as like a good, practice it can be a good practice of like of morality you know treating people with respect and and taking care of one another and um kind of living by this certain code of ethics um in your life to take care of yourself to honor god to honor mankind um but what's frustrating in, in my experience of christianity was i think like growing up evangelical that never that didn't really feel like the focal point, um, at least maybe after, you know, a certain age. And I kind of got to like, you know, the fact that a lot of times Christianity is enmeshed with conservatism, Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, as I'm thinking about those two, they just seem completely incompatible. But, you know, in our current politics, in our current era Mm -hmm. of, of like what conservatives spin as like, they try to inweave their ideas with, Christian morality, um, and it just it just feels so far away from it. But I guess that's kind of why a lot of people, you know, end up leaving religion is because they get a little um, too much cognitive dissonance. Yeah, yeah, um, and don't know how to put those back together. And I think especially yeah. when you grow up evangelical versus you know maybe maybe your family wasn't overly religious or maybe you grew up in a more progressive type of christianity household but when you grow up evangelical it's a very black or white thinking that Mm -hmm. that is hard to overcome so anyway just the series in general i think um has offered a lot of sometimes comical sometimes very thought-provoking and just generally interesting Mm -hmm. different ways that people you know play with religion and interact Mm -hmm. with religion in their lives and reconcile with these ideas going back to your first point about um you know religion being a therapeutic thing for people Mm -hmm. i think that that is present in this movie too you know just in a way that is more mocking of it um but like the idea going back to last temptation of christ that you were talking about last week zach about um you know when paul says whether the story is true or not I need to tell the story because it gives people comfort. It mm-hmm. gives people peace. Right. Um, like that idea 
is sort of the idea that is expressed with like all the people blindly following Brian because like they want answers. They mm-hmm. want something to believe in, some sort of leader, and that makes them feel better whether or not it's true. Right. Um, and so like there's a very positive way of looking at that of like, you know, everybody kind of needs to find their own peace and their own like way of coping with, you know, right. the fact that you don't have any power in the world. And, and that that's a thing in this movie too, of right. like, you know, what have the Romans done for us? You know, we have all these like left-wing political organizations that are trying to fight back against what, what appears to them as like oppressive, like an oppressive power structure, but right. they ultimately don't have any way of fixing it. Right. So like what most people are going to do is turn to some sort of like in the, the the python's eyes like superstition like right. just just believing that will it will all be taken care of somehow because they don't see any way that they can like take care of it themselves right. um and so like i think that this movie gives the much more like negative cynical view mm-hmm. on like that maybe not being particularly helpful you know like if we're thinking about the pythons as being left-wing artists at least in the at least familiar with left-wing political organization like i think that they would agree with this you know often quoted uh idea from marx that like religion is the opiate of the masses right right? it is it is a way in which uh people are able to kind of be numbed to like the idea that um they have any sort of autonomy or agency to push back against the existing power structure. Right. And so, and, and, and I like the scene a lot where Brian's like been running away from this crowd for a while and he loses his shoe, he loses, or he throws his gourd at somebody and they all start like Follow arguing. The gourd. Right. They all start arguing <laughs> with each other about like what this possibly could mean. Like, yeah. where are the gourd people? Where are the shoe people? You're supposed to wear the shoe. No, you're supposed to whack people with the shoe. No, you're supposed to only wear one shoe and that represents something, something, something. And I don't know. Like, that, I think that that's kind of what <laughs> that's how different denominations yeah. of Christianity is spurred out and they're also convinced that they have it right. And to mm. me, and I think I mentioned this on the podcast last week too, that's really narcissistic to think that you have the answer and your particular brand of Christianity has the exact absolute truth. It's very narcissistic. And so like it it comes it it makes the question of like whether or not religion is worth pursuing or whether or not Christianity specifically is true right. a much more complicated question because you have to ask yourself like a which religion and b which version of right. which religion because it's not as simple as just saying like well I believe in Christianity well what kind of theo- theology mm-hmm. do you subscribe to because there are a million different interpretations and like a million different ways of practicing the rituals of Christianity that right. may or may not have anything to do with the text. Um, and I'm saying all of this genuinely not trying to I don't know, be insulting or mocking of no. any kind of Christian listeners we have or anything like that. I mean, many many of like the people who contribute to this right. podcast are like very devout Christians who like I consider very close friends and like allies and confidants and right. like talking to them about these, you know, the kinds of issues that are have been brought up in this episode mm-hmm. is like a, a very like I don't know, helpful right. thing for me. Like um and, and specifically about political stuff, too. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that Christianity as, like, a general ethos is a much, like, more constructive lens to look at, like, the world through 
than a lot of the secular ways of, you mm-hmm. know, um, seeking political progress or whatever. Um, right. So I, I also don't want to come across as insulting at all. Yeah, I think right now, like, I'm very much in a place of curiosity. Like, I, I left um, the practice of Christianity probably by late high school, early college, somewhere in there, um, because it was just too dissonant from kind of where I felt like my belief system was at the time. And now, you know, as I'm connecting with other people who never really left it, but learned to deconstruct, um, I, I don't know, I'm just, I'm really curious. And I like having these conversations. And, and I think, too, what's interesting about portraying Christianity in film is that I think a lot of people who are raised Christian, maybe especially evangelical, or maybe Catholic, um, are told they can't question. They're not allowed to have doubts. They're not allowed to question. If you question, then that's a problem. And truly, like, you should be questioning and curious about everything in life Mm -hmm. and trying to have these conversations to expand your thinking. But that was, I think a lot of people are raised that questioning is sacrilegious. And so I think in film, it can be neat to play with these questions. um, But that's probably why people, there's backlash that there, there can be with movies like these because people don't, want to acknowledge that there are doubts and questions to these things that, you know, it's like, you can't, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it, and it shows, it shows like how, um, impactful movies or, t- or just any type of popular culture can be. Not that they're like, a you know, it's, it's important, but not important, but I think it's more, I think people don't realize how much of an imprint that can leave with different things, whether it's like, you know, I think that something like something that's like we talked about, like kind of like subtle things leaves more of an imprint on this is how you should think about this particular issue than like the overt, like the, you know, the, the Adam McKay, like here's here's the issue slapped, like pushed, you know, in your face like that stuff when it's kind of lecturing you like that's not going to I don't think that's ever going to change anybody's mind on anything because it's 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 almost like heavy handed, like slapping you in the face. Um, I don't think that this is a movie that will necessarily change people's minds, but I think that it at least presents ideas in a way that, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's fair conversations. I think they come at it in a, in a, in a relatively Mm -hmm. fair way. Yeah. So anyway, I was not so sure what I was going to make of this series and not so sure how interested I was when, but when Michael pitches a series, man, he doesn't, he doesn't half-ass it. He's got, he's got great ideas. (laughs) Um, and I think it's, it's been fun to participate in and follow. At least this one didn't include something like Wolf House that we had to endure, which was... Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Damn. Yeah. I'm still scarred from Wolf House. (laughs) Two stray thoughts about Life of Brian before we wrap up on it. Um, One, I love... I love the uh, the brick joke of the Judean people's front showing up at the very end and just like being a crack suicide squad. Like as this movie has kind of been exploring ideas of like the ineffectiveness of left wing political organization, the idea of like, you know, lefties just kind of being um, self-sabotaging or like self-cannibalizing or whatever um, is like encapsulated so beautifully um in this idea like well you know we're just we're just gonna show up and 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 kill ourselves and call it a job well done Uh, (laughs) um also we should probably not leave this movie behind without mentioning always look on the bright side of life um which is a wonderful delightful way this movie can end which 
which will be playing before this part Good. starts in the yeah. podcast. And, so. and it's like kind of a, a beautiful, um, a beautiful gesture towards the idea of like you know religion being a thing that people that gives people peace because of their fear of death, um, because like death is is scary and mm. like we want answers. We want answers. Of course we right? do. Um, or or we want to at least feel better about it, right? Um, and like that's probably like the aside from like the Sermon on the Mount um, being presented in like a very even-handed you know, very positive way at the beginning of the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, The, like, the Always Look on the Bright Side of Life song seems to be the most generous moment of the movie, kind of, like, acknowledging that, like, you know, people are people are hurting and and you know need something to make them feel better. Um, I don't but know though. I can't really have to be religious. I can't right? decide what I'm supposed to make of that. Like I've always thought it was kind of fun, but watching it this time around, like it almost felt a little mocking too. Like this guy's literally just going to be left to to die slowly over the next couple of days. Aren't we? All? Are we supposed to be like looking <laughs> yeah, at the positives all? there? I don't think there's really anything to to make positive out of that. I mean. Yeah, that's life's a, just full of shit. Life's a piece of shit. When you think of it, when you think of it, yeah. <laughs> um, the one, the one straight thought you mentioned it before, but the, I also like the whole sequence with the what have the Romans ever done for us? Um, yeah, well, besides that, well, the aqueducts. Yeah, yeah, the aqueducts. Besides that, sanitation. Yeah, that's that. Do you remember what it was like before sanitation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. It's a good movie. I don't know. It's not my like favorite Monty Python. I think Holy Grail is a, after rewatching it. It's a good it, movie. But, um, it's very good. It goes back and forth. You know, it's like, <laughs> like, like you shift between the two. Also, Meaning of Life's got some some stuff in it that really slaps. Um, every sperm is sacred. God. Is incredible. <laughs> I think I think maybe this is the weakest of of those three. But I would like to rewatch the other two. Yeah. Um. Well, that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. Uh, you can find us in the series. Uh, well, that makes it sound like it's just like everything's done. <laughs> and um, <laughs> we're all done. <laughs> no. um, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary on uh, Twitter and Instagram at handle at cinematary and on letterbox, letterbox.com slash cinematary where we, uh, um, what do we do? We put all the we put all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Um, head over to patreon.com slash <laughs> Let's talk about oh yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Head over to patreon.com slash cinematary if you'd like to support the podcast. Um, thank you to uh, our patrons. I saw that I I I um maybe I guess maybe Titus felt bad after being on the podcast because he's back in. Um <laughs> He's back in. He's back in. He felt <laughs> bad after back, after we gave him a hard time in the uh, Shrek the musical one. Um, thank you to Cam, Chad Newsom, Corey Willingham, Harry Eskin, Candace Sisson, Ron Hayes, Titus Arthur, Tyler Chandler, and Whitney Rio Ross. Thank you so much for your patronage. Uh, next week, we're going to be culminating the year 2021 in movies with the best of the year. Yeah. The objective, correct list of the best movies of 2021. I have no idea what's going to be on it, but I do know it will be correct. You haven't finished voting. Yeah, I don't even know what... I'm. I'm, I'm I'm very curious what number one will be because there's some years where I'm like, yeah, all these people, they all like this one, but I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, do do we want to make some guesses right now? Like what what might be? Number I could one? see Licorice Pizza um, not because a lot of people put it at number one, but I feel like it'll appear on a lot, lot of people. Lists. I think it'll make the list. I don't think it'll be top ten. I, don't know. I think I'm hoping I'm hopeful for Dune. 
I'm really pushing for some Dune. Really? You really? Think Dune is going to be number one. Okay, well maybe not. Um, Let's do in another I one. I think it'll be up there. Hold on, let me let me look at my list really quick to see what what is really popular that a lot of people probably put. Um, my, my list is on Andrew's computer. Green Knight, maybe Green Knight. I could see getting yeah. a lot of votes. Um, Mine's gonna be a lot of sleepy hits, a lot of, a lot of falling asleep in the movies. <laughs> I really have no idea what's gonna know. be number one. Oh, petite mama. Yeah. So many good ones this year. This was actually a really good year for movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> movies um, had a moment. Good for movies. They did, they did good this year. Last year, I don't know. Last year, I think my list was pretty weak. But this year, one day, Andrew and I were staying up late hanging out together. And well, married, I was so just okay. rattling off. We do that kind of most nights. Um, and we were... I was looking. I was. I made my top ten list with him, but it wasn't. It was before I saw Licorice Pizza. So Licorice Pizza is probably gonna kick something else off. I would say. Mm-hmm. But um, I was rattling off why everything was in my top ten. Um, yeah, a lot of movies really spoke to me this year. Um, so I'm excited. Hopefully, I'm on that episode. Does everybody have to be on that episode? I don't know how it works. We'll, we'll have we'll have all the main folks. I'm excited to wax poetically if I get to be on that episode about be on what that's, my that's, favorites yeah. were and why they were so profound to me. That's what we do. All right, until I'm next... I'm just hoping Annette gets on there. That's true. I think Annette will make sense. We some. love baby Annette. That's true. All right. I'm not watching it. Until next week. <laughs> not going to do it. See you. Goodbye. Peace. Bye. Adios.